Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Michael Cookson from the University of Oklahoma talking about AOA guidelines on the management of advanced prostate cancer. It's a pleasure to be here uh, this early evening to present to you some of the um, AOA guidelines and advanced prostate cancer case-based approach. Um, I realize that it is Thanksgiving week and I also realize that it's a couple of days after the in-service exam where no learning can take place, but we'll do our best to try and convey the the message of um, best management for advanced prostate cancer. So these are my disclosures and uh, all of these companies have um, relevant uh, products in this space and um, I will stick to the guidelines evidence-based component. That is um, my promise and uh, these are advisory board uh, relationships. So the guidelines were developed from a, a systematic multidisciplinary panel that included uh, members from ASCO, ASTRO, the SUO, as well as the AUA. Um, the guidelines took uh, about 22 years of, of contemporary data and uh, distilled it down to roughly about 250 publications. Uh, some of those were carried over from the original castration-resistant prostate cancer guidelines, um, 26 new studies, and these were then released in 2020 in the uh, June virtual AUA. So the, the guideline statements were about 38 in total. And even though urologists have been managing men with uh, androgen deprivation therapy since the 1940s, uh, they really never had a guideline on uh, how to manage metastatic disease. And we did have a guideline on castration resistance, but um, the, the purpose of this uh, guideline was to carry forward from biochemical recurrence, metastatic disease, and then uh, into the castration resistant arena. So the guidelines uh, follow along with uh, the international grade um, system, which is a, it's still a subjective system, but it's pretty worked out to look for um, some of the most important components in studies. Um, it takes into consideration things like risk of bias, imprecision, such as confidence intervals, how many patients were enrolled in the study, inconsistency, so if there's only a single study or if there's multiple studies in that space, if there's different results, um, things like uh, looking at publication bias even. And so I think that all of that rolls up into strength of evidence and there's little grades that are given um, that correlate with that system and it's an ABC system in the AUA to allow you to at least understand where the evidence is strong and, and where it needs some additional data. Um, this is a schematic of what was covered. And so the ground rules here were that for patients who had uh, presented with uh, prostate cancer, they had exhausted their local treatment options. So this guideline does not encompass things like post-operative radiation therapy, salvage or adjuvant. It assumes a patients have already had that treatment. They've had their local therapies. Now they've got a rising PSA or development of metastatic disease. 
So the multidisciplinary patient care approach is pretty common at most large academic centers. It's a, at most um, large cancer centers and certainly is permeating out into community urology as well. Uh, Dr. Caitlin Shepard, my um, uh, moderator and who's the current uh, fellow at the University of Oklahoma is on this line. She has written a recent paper on this. It'll be coming out in the urology clinics. But the bottom line is that the care for these patients with advanced disease often incorporates a team. And the team includes urologists, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, genetic counselors. At, uh, towards the latter part, it can be palliative care. And then there's a, you know, a, a whole burgeoning field of um, cardio-oncology for some of the side effects of, of some of the treatments and our newer understanding of not just bone health, but also cardiovascular um, side effects of some of these treatments. So it's a team approach that ultimately, hopefully will resolve, result in the best care for the patients. Some of the early um, of guidelines, and these are the first three listed here, you'll notice they're all clinical principles. And so where there's really not like randomized high-level studies, there has to be some common sense. And that's really what a clinical principle is. It's sort of generally agreed upon, very reasonable approach by the average uh, clinician. And so it's hard to believe, but there are patients that are treated without a histological diagnosis. And we do see these a couple times a year. Um, there can be special circumstances where treatment needs to be instituted before you have the opportunity to actually get a diagnosis, maybe a cord compression, a really dramatic presentation. But by and large, at some point, you need a tissue diagnosis to really diagnose the primary tumor or from a metastatic site so that you at least can confirm what you're treating. Um, I've been referred many patients. They can have adenopathy and a localized prostate cancer. Sometimes they have lymphoma and prostate cancer. Uh, sometimes the lymph nodes are benign. There, there can be special circumstances. So it's really important that you do get a tissue diagnosis. Beyond that, of course, it's a good clinical principle to establish the treatment options based on the patient's life expectancy, comorbidities, their preferences, tumor characteristics, and that's where kind of the whole patient comes into view and that multidisciplinary care model. We also want to optimize their symptoms and their pain control if indeed they're advanced and, and need additional therapy. These additional clinical principles now are really falling into the realm of that biochemical recurrence. So patients present to you with a rising PSA after kind of exhausting their local therapy, and they need to know that they're at risk for the development of metastatic disease. So that involves the concept of following them with PSA monitoring, as well as to assess them radiographically to assess whether or not there is indeed metastatic disease. Using things like doubling time, performing periodic conventional imaging or um, advanced PET scanning is part of the management of these patients. Now, as we sit here today and at the time of, of the guideline presentation, really the, the development of PET scans is a work in progress. Currently, um, the FDA-approved flucyclovine is, is, is usually pretty readily available in most places in the United States, but unless you live at a study center, such as in San Francisco or UCLA, it's pretty difficult to get things like a PSMA scan. That's coming. Um, and again, you need to remember that none of the um, imaging studies that are coming out are really like comparison studies between conventional imaging and these PET scans to show that you'll improve the length of life or the survival of patients. So they might be enhanced levels of detection, sometimes confirmed with pathology, but 
um, it's it's in the possible realm of things you can order, but it's certainly not mandated for all patients. Um, when we look at the biochemical recurrence, again, a clinical principle would be that in these patients who have a rising PSA after failed local therapy and no demonstrable metastatic disease, it's very reasonable to offer those patients observation or enrollment in a clinical trial. And that, again, gets back to the fact that most of these patients are asymptomatic. We know all of the treatments we offer them will result in some adverse events. And so you have to really guide the patient towards the risk benefit of these treatments. In addition, we, it was felt by the panel, and that's where expert opinion comes in, and these are oncologists as well as urologists, radiation oncologists, they felt like should not routinely or just knee-jerk start androgen deprivation therapy because the PSA is rising. However, if at the end of the day, the androgen deprivation therapy that is initiated in the absence of metastatic disease, these patients are a subset that is uh, appropriate for intermittent androgen deprivation therapy in lieu of continuous. And that was based on uh, this Canadian study that looked at intermittent therapy in patients with a rising PSA after radiation therapy, either salvage or primary radiation. And they had over a thousand patients in this study. And essentially it was a non-inferiority study where they looked to see if there was any real difference in the outcome of these patients. They really didn't see any major differences in their overall survival when the ADT was instituted for the rising PSA. However, there were some quality of life advantages to patients on intermittent therapy where they recovered some of the, from the, some of the side effects. And so that's where intermittent therapy may be appropriate rather than patients who have metastatic disease. Switching to metastatic disease now, um, patients who do uh, come in and present with metastatic disease at the time of their presentation, they should be assessed. And that assessment includes both um, PSA imaging and radiographic imaging to assess the extent of their disease. And so we'll just kind of highlight intermixed with the presentation, uh, a case and this is a case of a 65-year-old gentleman who had a prostate nodule. He had a high PSA at the time of presentation, 35. He had a biopsy that revealed a Gleason score 8 or a grade group 4 tumor. And so then we have to assess him. And so um, in the guidelines, the assessing the extent of their metastatic disease using, again, conventional imaging is appropriate in these patients. And then in addition to the fact that we order conventional bone scan, CT scan, then the clinician should also look to determine whether or not the patient has what would be considered low or high volume disease. So these patients, um, and the, at the time the guidelines were written based on some of the studies that have come forward, it was felt that using the charted definition of high and low volume would be appropriate. And so that's defined here as high volume is greater than or equal to four bone mets with at least one outside of the spine or the pelvis and or the presence of visceral metastases. So that's how you become, in, by definition, high volume metastatic. In addition, and this is kind of weaved throughout the guidelines and should be coming part of our standard care, offering patients consideration for um, germline testing in newly diagnosed metastatic um, hormone-sensitive prostate cancer is appropriate. And that is due to a lot of reasons. One is that we found these tumors in patients who present with metastatic disease, if they harbor these um, homologous recumbent repair or DNA damage repair genes, they tend to have a more aggressive course 
And it also has implications for their family members uh, where there's about a 50% chance that the, their daughter or their son could have inherited one of these. And then they too could be at risk, not only for prostate cancer, colon cancer, melanoma, breast cancer. So there's implications for cascade testing and genetic counseling. So that's also new and wasn't taught a long time ago when we were just learning how to manage patients with metastatic disease. So back to the case, this patient had no evidence of any metastases. He was determined to have low volume metastatic burden and he underwent germline testing, which at this time was negative for any of the uh, gene alterations that we were looking for. So he's newly diagnosed, he has low volume metastatic disease, what are the treatment options and how would you choose one therapy over the other? So back to the guidelines. Um, clinicians should offer men ADT with either an LHRH agonist or an antagonist or castration. So that was a strong recommendation. The other thing was that they should offer continued ADT in combination with, another, with either an androgen-directed pathway therapy, such as abiraterone, apalutamide, or enzalutamide, or chemotherapy. And we'll go through um, some of the studies that led to that and how you might make a decision of one over the other. So this was the charted study. This was a randomized trial. It took men on ADT with newly diagnosed metastatic disease and randomized them to either continuation of the ADT alone or ADT plus docetaxel. And what they found was that there was a survival advantage by overall about a year in men who add the combination of chemotherapy to traditional ADT. Now, this study um, was important because when we very first learned about the um, activity of, of docetaxel chemotherapy in men with castration resistance, the benefit was really modest, about three months. But by moving this up to patients with um, an earlier disease state, newly diagnosed metastatic, we're seeing more than a year of benefit in terms of their overall survival. Getting back to what's the strength of the evidence, well, the European study, uh, the Stampede study, which is kind of a multi-arm, multi-stage, it, it's almost like a racehorse, but as new therapies come along, then they randomize into it. So they too had a study with the same clinical trial design where they gave docetaxel chemotherapy with ADT compared to ADT alone, and almost a mirror image finding with about 3,000 patients where there was a significant survival advantage and somewhere around a 22% overall improvement in their survival, looking at adding chemotherapy in addition to traditional ADT. Switching now to kind of the androgen axis. So this was a latitude study and the latitude study took men and again, gave them traditional ADT, but added abiraterone acetate, which has to be taken with a steroid, um, and compared it to placebo. And what they again found was an overall survival advantage in men using combination um, sort of maximal androgen ablation therapy as compared to ADT alone, both progression-free and then ultimately overall survival in these men. So this is the uh, overall survival data from the Stampede study. I told you that Stampede often has a very um, similar way to compare. And so the Latitude study was a pharmaceutical study, that um, sponsored study, and the Stampede study is, is the European version of that. Um, and they, again, using the similar trial design, found that the adding abiraterone to traditional ADT 
added significant overall survival advantage to men with newly diagnosed metastatic disease. So that was abiraterone. And later I'll talk a little bit about the mechanisms of action, but what about just conventional um, additional androgen blockade? And this was the Titan trial where they added apalutamide plus ADT to ADT plus placebo. And again, found significant overall survival advantage, first radiographic progression free, but then also overall survival advantage. And so that is an important additional oral agent that can be added to the mix of traditional ADT. And then finally, another study looking at another antigen access uh, therapy, enzalutamide. So enzalutamide had two studies. Arches was the first one, took enzalutamide plus ADT and compared it to ADT and placebo and found in the Arches study where their primary endpoint was radiographic progression-free or the delay in the development of metastatic disease, a significant improvement. And then a second study called Enzymet looked at overall survival and found that overall survival was improved by adding enzalutamide to the ADT over conventional ADT alone. And so now we had multiple treatments for newly diagnosed metastatic disease, where in the past, all we had was ADT alone. So that was probably the most important uh, genesis for developing the newly diagnosed metastatic um, guidelines in that we now had therapies that were showing overall survival advantage in well done level one randomized clinical trials using conventional ADT and comparing it to additional therapy. So the guidelines then state that you should not offer first generation antiandrogens such as bicalutamide um, or falutamide or nilutamide. Those are drugs that were common in the first generation, maybe a decade ago, in combination with LHRH agonists, um, except if you're just gonna block that initial flare. And that's because these newer agents are 10 times more potent than these traditional first-generation antiandrogens, and you don't get the survival benefit that you see with the combinations that I just showed you. Also important is that as good as those oral androgen therapies are, they should be used in combination with traditional ADT because we really haven't studied them as monotherapy in these patients. And so it was felt that they should be only used in combination. So back to our case, um, I said, well, what are the treatment options? And so we know that we could do chemo and hormonal therapy with docetaxel, or we could do the man maximum androgen ablation uh, pathway, looking at either abiraterone with prednisone, enzalutamide, or apalutamide. Uh, this is um, a little bit that I didn't have time to go into in the interest of our 45 minutes or so, but in the um, charted study, they uh, a priori divided patients into lower high volume. Remember I said when newly diagnosed metastatic patients arrive, they should be um, categorized or sorted based on the volume of their cancer. And so at inception, um, they were originally only going to enroll high volume patients, but they were having trouble with accrual. They included low and high volume patients. And then they ultimately analyzed the data looking at the volume of their metastatic burden. And what they found was that overall, yes, there was benefit by about a year, but in the patients who were defined as high volume, newly diagnosed metastatic, the benefit was more like 18 months. So that was significant, whereas they really didn't see much difference in patients who were uh, considered low volume. So that, at least in the United States, has sort of shifted the 
practice patterns towards a more chemotherapy for high volume patients, those with visceral metastases, et cetera, and less um, chemotherapy for the low volume at presentation, more use of the androgen targeted pathways. I will say that um, in the Stampede study, they didn't really find this. They found benefit in both high and low volume. And in the Stampede study, maybe the difference is that in Europe, many of the patients present de novo with metastatic disease, whereas in the US study, uh, many of those patients had progressed from um, local therapies to metastatic disease, and there may be difference in the biology of those tumors. But that's an area of investigation. Um, but again, the US charted study uh, showed benefit really predominantly in the high volume presentation patients, and that's kind of influenced a lot of the practice pattern. So this patient underwent ADT plus abiraterone. Remember I said he was a low volume presentation patient, and I think that he presented even before the other two oral agents were available, and he had a good response to therapy. He did have some side effects from his treatment, like hot flashes and some fatigue, um, but he did well and remained in remission at 24 months. Um, we'll get into the bone health a little bit later, but he was maintained on calcium and vitamin D for his bone health. And then another question that's coming up as a hot topic is what about treatment of the primary tumor? Let's say that a patient presented with newly diagnosed metastatic disease and he's never had radiation, he's never had surgery, um, would you consider treatment of his primary tumor? And if so, what would you choose? So guidance on this, there are really two studies, but this one is the most important one. Again, a stampede study from Europe, um, that uh, multi-armed, uh, multifaceted study where they randomized patients to primary radiotherapy versus observation and both of the arms received uh, conventional ADT. And in that study, they did not find any overall survival benefit if you just took all comers. They did show that adding primary radiation therapy could um, result in what's called failure-free survival or less development of metastatic additional sites and that sort of thing. But when they did a subset analysis of patients based on their charted definitions of high and low volume disease, in the low volume patients, there was a benefit um, in terms of um, both, I'll show you in a minute, progression-free and overall survival if radiation therapy was applied to the primary tumor. So on the left here is the low metastatic burden patients and the curves separate and there were statistically significant benefits to those patients, both in terms of the failure-free and overall survival for low volume uh, metastatic patients. And so that has then been uh, shown to be a, a standard in selected patients in the guidelines now. There, there is support for the use of uh, primary radiation therapy to the prostate in combination with ADT in those patients who present with low volume disease. What about surgery? Well, there's some retrospective studies that add a little bit of interest to that, but that's all they really are. And so um, there is a couple of studies internationally going on, but the one in the United States is the Southwest Oncology Group, um, S1802, which is where most men who are interested in surgery and really even our newly diagnosed uh, metastatic patients are encouraged to go. And what they do is they receive six months of conventional ADT and then they get randomized and half of the patients are treated and half of the patients are observed. And within the treatment, there's um, kind of positions for 
patients for surgery and positions for patients with radiation. And until we complete these kind of trials, really we shouldn't offer uh, surgery as a primary therapy in newly diagnosed metastatic patients. So back to our case, this patient pursued treatment of his primary. Again, a standard is primary radiation therapy because he was low volume. He tolerated it well. He continues on his ADT and abiraterone and he remains in remission. So we're gonna switch now to the more advanced form of, uh, of uh, metastatic disease um, or uh, uh, sort of a moving along the disease spectrum and that's castration resistance. So the first one is a kind of a physician created disease state called non-metastatic CRPC. And these are patients who got started on ADT because they had a rising PSA. They never had demonstrable evidence of radiographic disease and yet now their PSA is starting to rise again and they remain castrate on their testosterone level. So these patients, um, are, it's recommended to continue to monitor their PSA and to calculate their doubling times. And we'll talk about that in a minute, why that's important. But we know that the development of metastatic disease is, is, is kind of widely um, heterogeneous in this population. Some patients are destined to develop metastatic disease very early, and some patients uh, can go several years without development of metastatic disease. So this to illustrate is a, is a case of a non-metastatic uh, CRPC patient. At age 57, he underwent a radical prostatectomy for a high-grade tumor it involved his seminal vesicles, and he did have a positive margin. He completed adjuvant radiation therapy, and his PSA went to undetectable. Um, however, over the course of the following two years, he developed a rising PSA, and when it got to around three, despite negative conventional imaging, he was nervous, his physician was nervous, and he was treated with ADT. He had a good response to therapy and uh, did well for a while, but his PSA after uh, a couple of years started to rise again. His PSA went up to around four. And at that point, calculating it, his doubling time was relatively short, three months. Conventional imaging was still negative. So in this patient, you know, the questions are, what other imaging should you get? Should he get a novel PET scan? Um, who would be safe to observe in this setting? Again, no symptoms, just a rising PSA on ADT. And then what factors would drive decision-making in this setting and what are the treatments that are available? So in um, 2013, there was a, a, essentially a negative study uh, that looked at the use of a, of a bone targeting agent to look at prevention of uh, of development of metastatic disease. And it, it basically what they found was enrolling these patients who didn't have metastatic burden, that about a third of them would blossom into metastatic disease within two years. And when they teased out the data, not surprisingly, the rise in their PSA, the doubling time was an important predictor as well as their overall PSA. So some of these patients had PSAs that were above 20 at the time of enrollment. And, but the rapid PSA doubling time, even in some of the low PSAs, was a determinant of uh, predicting development of metastatic disease. And so when the PSA doubling time got down to somewhere less than 12 months, less than 10 months, the, this um, primary uh, finding that they were soon to develop metastatic disease was, was um, a factor. And that was the genesis for um, the three studies that were done in this space. So when we very first started doing patients who had 
um, we call it M0 or non-metastatic CRPC, really the, this was sort of that early index patient one. We didn't have any therapies there. All the companies knew that and they, they kind of rushed out to do studies looking at randomizing patients to placebo versus apalutamide, darolutamide, or enzalutamide, so three separate studies. In addition to that, they looked at a new primary endpoint, and that's the development of metastatic disease or death from cancer. And so for the first time, the FDA decided that, you know, that was an important endpoint for patients and, 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 and allowed for studies to progress with that as their primary endpoint. So let's go through those studies quickly because they're all very similar in their findings, but the Spartan study was the first study in this uh, deck, and it looked at the use of apalutamide uh, with continuation of ADT versus placebo, and you can see about two years of added benefit or the delay in the development of metastatic disease or death um, using an oral agent in patients with this non-metastatic disease state. So that was the Spartan study. The Aramis study looked at the use of darolutamide. Um, and again, you can see these Kaplan-Meier curves for the metastasis-free survival were very similar and very significant. And so again, another perhaps two years of benefit um, for patients taking this oral agent. They extended their follow-up this year. And so uh, in uh, the publication in the New England Journal this year now includes overall survival benefit. So um, urologists were reasonably um, uh, impressed with the metastasis-free survival, but a lot of oncologists were not. They just felt like maybe we were delaying the inevitable. But now that these studies are maturing, um, they're showing overall survival benefit, which almost everybody could agree would be an important endpoint for these patients um, with these rapid doubling times. And I may have forgotten to mention, but all the three studies included patients with doubling times of less than 10 months. So um, they knew that these patients would um, develop metastatic disease. It wasn't for all comers though. You had to have a rapid doubling time to be included. And then the third study is the PROSPER study, which used the active agent enzalutamide compared to placebo, and again, um, important and significant, similar um, uh, metastasis-free survival benefit um, with the third oral agent. And then they also updated their um, follow-up recently and have an overall survival advantage as well um, with uh, use of early institution of enzalutamide with ADT in non-metastatic disease. So back to the case, uh, this patient was continuous ADT and uh, he was added a novel second generation AR oral agent. His PSA responded and he tolerated the therapy well. He'd have some fatigue, but was doing well with that. I mentioned to you earlier uh, the use of uh, germline testing in patients with newly diagnosed metastatic disease, but it's also recommended in patients with castration resistant disease. And so many of these patients didn't know that or we didn't know to order those tests when they were originally diagnosed. And so as they come back through the clinic, they're offered uh, genetic counseling and germline testing. And this particular patient had a BRCA2 mutation. So now we'll move uh, relatively quickly into the metastatic CRPC. And again, in the interest of time, I've tried to kind of abbreviate some of this, but um, in patients with metastatic CRPC, you should similarly uh, evaluate for the extent of their metastatic disease burden. Um, and that is usually done with conventional imaging. Um, in addition, we offer them 
um, germline testing and even somatic testing. So that can be done, uh, it, traditionally it had to be done with a biopsy for the somatic testing, but now it's uh, becoming available in the form of a blood test too, or a liquid biopsy, if you will. Again, looking for those same uh, in the germline testing, the DNA repair um, deficiency mutations and the microsatellite instability is really a somatic change that would be found on either a liquid biopsy or a tissue biopsy and uh, offering these patients um, genetic uh, counseling as well. So this is a menu of about uh, 11 therapies that are available for men with uh, metastatic CRPC. Um, this is pretty impressive considering that, you know, about a decade ago, we really didn't have much to offer men in this particular um, disease state. So we've got a variety of oral agents, chemotherapy and immune therapy. We've got some uh, salvage secondary therapies. We've got radium or uh, alpha emitting bone targeted therapy, PARP inhibitors, and even some immune therapy that is agnostic to the tumor type, but uh, relying on uh, second line therapy for those patients who might have a, a microsatellite instability high tumor. So this will be our third and final case. This is a 61-year-old gentleman. He presents with a rapidly rising PSA. Now it's 17 and he's been on conventional testosterone uh, uh, suppression and his T remains low. Um, he'd had surgery in the past. He'd been on continuous Lupron. His bone density remains acceptable and he's on calcium and vitamin D. He has what would be considered to be mild symptoms. So he's got a little bit of back pain. Um, he has imaging that demonstrates uh, one new lesion in his spine and some pelvic adenopathy. So he's got kind of early, minimally symptomatic metastatic castration resistance. And so what are the, what are, the question here is what are the options for treatment in this setting and how would you sequence these agents? So options for him include any of these here. So we'll go through quickly the, the studies, but abiraterone, which you already know about from the previous um, discussion is an option in CRPC as well as in metastatic uh, prostate cancer. Enzalutamide and docetaxel are also previously mentioned and options in this setting. And then cipulusal T has a, um, a kind of a unique indication in patients with minimally symptomatic metastatic CRPC. Other considerations always include things like, what if they have visceral disease? This patient does not. Uh, significant symptoms, rapid pace of disease. Those all might be things to tip the balance towards chemotherapy if the patient has never seen chemotherapy. However, um, in this patient, he really doesn't have that kind of symptomatology. So the guideline statement says that in newly diagnosed men with metastatic CRPC, clinicians should offer continued ADT with either abiraterone plus prednisone, docetaxel, or enzalutamide. So those are all standard options. Um, I thought we'd just kind of include the mechanism of action. So um, we know that um, abiraterone uh, works on uh, sort of the production of androgen synthesis. And so it's a CYP17 and a CYP17, C1720 lyase inhibitor. And so you have to include the use of prednisone, otherwise you'll get kind of an um, undisturbed production of aldosterone that results in hypertension, low potassium, and you don't want that scenario, excess mineralocorticoid. So that's why we include what is really a physiologic dose 
um, somewhere around five milligrams of prednisone or perhaps up to seven and a half uh, milligrams on a daily basis when they take abiraterone. And these are the two studies that um, gave abiraterone its original approval in the metastatic CRPC space. The first one was the post-chemo on the right that got its original FDA approval. And the second one was the pre-chemotherapy study, all uh, industry-sponsored studies by Cougar um, at the time, 301 and 302, survival benefit to adding abiraterone in the setting of castration resistance with continuation. So then the mechanism of action of enzalutamide is different. It, it, it's more of a androgen binder. It blocks the androgen receptor, but it also has these additional um, inhibitions within the cell, inhibits nuclear translocation, and inhibits uh, the association of the antigen receptor with DNA. So that's why it's felt to be so much more potent than, say, traditional uh, flutamide or bicolutamide. And the mechanisms of action for apalutamide and darolutamide are believed to be similar. So in this CRPC state, um, pre- and post-chemotherapy studies were done for enzalutamide, the first post-chemotherapy one, again, showed a survival benefit to adding this additional um, agent in the setting of castrate um, with LHRH or orchiectomy, and that was the AFFIRM trial, and then the PREVAIL trial was the pre-chemotherapy, and again, showed um, survival benefit. But notice these survival benefits are much more modest than what we see when we present uh, these type of agents in the newly diagnosed metastatic state. Docetaxel got its original approval from the, um, from the original uh, study that was published looking at the use of, of docetaxel in castration-resistant men. It was compared to mitoxantrone, so it wasn't compared to placebo, um, but there was a significant survival benefit using the every three-week uh, regimen as compared to weekly or mitoxantrone, and that's really the first indicator that we had that there was some activity for chemotherapy in men with prostate cancer. Getting back to the special situation where you, the first immune therapy really for prostate cancer was cipulusal T, and that was specifically a trial, the IMPACT trial, that was designed for men who had either asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, and, and it provided them with um, the uh, cipulusal T and showed a survival benefit in the magnitude of about five to six months. Um, interestingly, it really didn't change their PSAs. It didn't change any radiographs. And so our understanding of how it was really working um, still remains a little bit of a, of a mystery, but certainly the immune therapies don't have an automatic impact on, on some of the traditional uh, progression that we look for in patients based on imaging and PSA. So back to this patient who's mildly symptomatic. At the time, he was placed on enzalutamide, and he had a good response. However, he progressed um, over the next couple of years and developed uh, some bone metastases. He did not have any soft tissue uh, or visceral metastases. And so what would he be left with for treatment? Certainly, docetaxel chemotherapy could be an option for him, as well as the use of radium-223. So we haven't really talked about radium, but radium 223 is um, approved for patients with symptomatic uh, bony metastases that are metastatic CRPC. And those patients enrolled in their original trials did not have visceral metastases, 
although they were allowed to have lymph nodes up to three centimeters. So this was um, the study looking at radium, and it did include patients who had had prior docetaxel or not. And so you can see that it is effective whether or not they've seen prior docetaxel. So you don't have to wait till somebody has progressed through chemotherapy to use radium-223. And similarly, um, you can use it if they have had prior docetaxel chemotherapy. So these are just some things to consider when you know you have a patient and he's not doing well with a, one form of therapy. Um, there has been for a long time sort of a urologist's um, stubbornness to kind of stick with androgen therapy. And if one pill didn't work, switch to the other pill, things like that. But in general, it's felt that, and the data is now showing this through several studies, that if you're failing one sort of uh, treatment and the mechanism of action should be switched to a different one in hopes of getting a better response. So um, there have been like the PLOTO study here where they show that you can't just, abiraterone doesn't work well if enzalutamide's failing and those kind of things. And, and we've seen that throughout. So you need to um, consider switching to a different mechanism of action if the one you're using is not working. And so in the guidelines, patients who've received prior docetaxel um, with or without abiraterone um, or enzalutamide, uh, they can be offered a second-line chemotherapy such as cabazitaxel. And that's really what these two um, guideline statements are about is to consider rather than patients who are failing, say, enzalutamide or abiraterone, switching from one of those to the other, it was really felt that that might be the time when you move forward with a second-line chemo. This is the TROPIC study, and that was the study that gave cabazitaxel its FDA approval um, for patients as a second-line therapy after having failed docetaxel chemotherapy. Again, these were patients with pretty advanced disease pretty far advanced castration-resistant disease, and there was a survival advantage, and it was compared to mitoxantrone, which at the time was the um, one of the FDA-approved um, agents uh, that is really approved for palliation, but important to note that cabazitaxel was not like compared to placebo. This kind of hammers home uh, the um, desire for us to introduce genetic testing to men. So, um, in men that have castration-resistant disease, it's felt that these um, DNA repair alterations can be present, and that includes germline and somatic changes in up to about uh, 25%. So that offers the opportunity uh, for treatment in these men, and we're heading to that in a second. And then while it's a relatively lower risk of um, germline mutations in patients with newly diagnosed metastatic disease, still uh, at least 10% of those patients can harbor one of those mutations, and you really don't need to have a family history to order those tests, and age is not an independent predictor of who would be positive in that setting. So now, um, kind of in our infancy, but we now have some testing that is sort of precision-based medicine, and that is tying um, these new therapies to the uh, germline alterations that we talked about. So PARP inhibition or PARP inhibitors are now approved for, there's two PARP inhibitors that are approved, there's uh, several more coming that are approved for patients who have metastatic CRPC, have failed prior treatment, 
with enzalutamide, abiraterone, or taxane-based chemotherapy. Um, and so that's important for us to be able to know that, to test for that, or to refer if we don't prescribe those kind of agents um, to our medical oncology colleagues. And then I mentioned to you before the somatic alteration, which can occur. And so this example is the um, microsatellite instability, high patients, those patients would be candidates for pembrolizumab. So um, there is kind of a role. Th this is the New England Journal initial studies that came out this year, looking at the profound study where the use of the PARP inhibitor Olaparib um, showed uh, some progression free. There's been some subsequent studies, they're all small, but they're showing some overall survival advantage in these patients who harbor um, these mutations who have progressed. And, and so Olaparib, the study allowed for progression following treatment with either enzalutamide or abiraterone and showed benefit. And then the second study was Rucaparib. Um, that study uh, looked at the benefit um, in patients who had been uh, treated with androgen-directed therapy and a taxane-based chemo, but again, showed um, significant overall uh, progression-free response uh, to treatment using a relatively new agent. So if we think about these agents like the original um, other agents that I showed you that have kind of this short-term benefit, but benefit and activity in the very end stage of their disease. Now, of course, the question is, what about employing um, this genetic testing in some of these agents earlier in the disease state? So hopefully over the next couple of years, we will learn that. In this particular case, the patient uh, was treated um, and he ultimately was treated with docetaxel and he responded initially, but progressed. And then he had some germline testing and was placed on a PARP inhibitor and has had a response. And it's only been about six months. So the final part of the guidelines is really just attention to bone health. Um, we know that men who are older have some risk of osteopenia and osteoporosis. Uh, there are risk factors that you can kind of easily identify when you interview patients. Um, things like uh, prior hip fractures or, or history of fracture, smokers, alcohol excess, those are all increased sedentary lifestyle. Um, and then we know that when we add treatment, particularly androgen-directed treatment, we weaken their bones. And so when you put all this together, you know that we should pay attention to their bone health. The same could really be said of cardiovascular, but we won't go into that right now. Baseline testing, including a DEXA scan, is part of the decision-making, looking to see if they're osteopenic or osteoporotic. You can then plug that into a FRAC score with their history, and then you can come up with a tool to try and determine whether or not things such as just recommendation for exercise, weight-bearing, alcohol moderation, and smoking cessation coupled with calcium and vitamin D will be enough, or whether or not we're going to have to add a bone-targeted agent. And so the bone-targeting agents are bisphosphonates and denosumab. Um, those can be considered in patients that are at high risk based on their FRAC score, um, certainly. And for those patients who do have, indeed, bony metastases, uh, you're really looking to prevent these skeletal related events, uh, hip fractures, bony fractures that don't necessarily have to be related to a metastatic site uh, can certainly be um, correlated with a reduced overall survival. So important to include their bone health in the discussion. So in the time that we've had, I've tried to kind of take you through the changing landscape of, 
of metastatic prostate cancer that included the hormone sensitive with the various trials using chemotherapy and the androgen targeted agents. We talked about the non-metastatic space where there's three active agents all received approval for metastasis-free survival. Now we're seeing overall survival. We talked about the metastatic CRPC patients and some of the first-line therapies uh, listed here. And again, the CIPT is really for those minimally symptomatic. So you, you're gonna use that in your regimen. You have to think about it early in their presentation. And then we have a variety of second-line and third-line therapies that also can be offered. And then down below kind of our emerging market of, of disease uh, uh, treatments related to precision-based treatments based on uh, determinants of germline and or somatic testing. So the future is bright for all this because these areas are really being studied. We're trying to integrate the multidisciplinary care model, look at integration of PET and not only PET, but sort of theranostics or you know, treatments linked to those PETs uh, agents once they become widely available. We're really early in our infancy about how to determine biomarkers and what biomarkers would change decision-making, but we're getting there. And I want to acknowledge the guideline panel, um, which uh, Dr. Will Lawrence was the chair of, and you can see the various members, the AUA staff, external reviewers, methodologists, all played important roles in the development of this. If you are so inclined, you certainly are encouraged to go to the website where you can learn more about this and see the guidelines in their full detail, as well as the data behind the guidelines. And then finally, for this particular presentation, they've asked me to put this up. And so if you hated the lecture, don't respond. No, but you, you're welcome to comment on this in hopes of improving um, future talks. So with that, I'm, I'm gonna thank you. That kind of ends my formal presentation. And if there are any questions, I'll be happy to answer. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.